2: Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and me wondering whether I would have been better off if I had just gone to law school this year like I was supposed to. (music) On tap for today, the $2.8 billion settlement for Indigenous Day scholars in residential schools. And the growing calls for bail reform and what impacts this could have on people moving through Canada's criminal justice system. Joining me this week, newly a professor at TMU, host of the Red Surgeons podcast, and most iconically star of Family Feud, Riley Yesno, did you win $10,000
3: on Family Feud? I can finally say that we did. We won. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't imagine how you feel, Matea, having won a game show, what, 23 times or something like that? Something like that. Incredible. Well, congratulations. We are very proud of you. Next, we have founder of Bold
2: Realities and creator of Whose Land, Karen Restool. We're so happy to have you back at the backbench.
0: Thanks, Matea. Happy to be here again.
2: And last but not least, a new voice on our show, lawyer and law professor at the University of Victoria, Patricia Burkaskis. Welcome to the backbench. Thanks. First
1: podcast. Very excited.
2: This is going to be a bit of a heavy discussion, so let's get into it.
1: Sweet. We start with breaking news on Canada's residential schools. A
0: $2.8 billion settlement between the federal government and 325 First Nations.
1: Canada's policy of attacking our language and culture for over 120 years had devastated our own system of government and laws and seriously impacted our language.
4: What it can do is help address the collective harm caused by Canada's past, a deeply colonial one. The monies will never be able to, uh, according to our elders, repay the uh, cultural uh, language and, uh, if I may say, uh, spiritual losses.
2: A proposed settlement of a class action lawsuit has been reached between the federal government and 325 First Nations. It's the second settlement in this case, and it provides reparations for the loss of language and culture experienced by indigenous people who attended residential schools as day scholars. This all began as a lawsuit launched back in 2012 and has made its way through the courts before settling 10 days before a scheduled trial. The case applies to Indigenous children who attended schools during the day, students who were left out of the 2006 residential school settlement, which was the largest class action lawsuit in Canada's history. There's just one step left in this process, which is that the federal court must approve the deal before it can actually be rolled out. Once that approval happens, each First Nation will receive $200,000 to create a 10-year plan for language and cultural revitalization for things such as new learning centers and language teachers. $2.9 billion will also be placed in a trust fund that will operate for the next 20 years, and that fund will be run independently of the federal government. We're going to look at how the government and the First Nations involved in the settlement arrived at this agreement and what impacts this settlement might have going forward. The four pillars that are going to guide how some of the funds in this settlement are going to be used are revival, protection, promotion, and wellness of Indigenous languages and cultures. So, Riley, what kind of on-the-ground impact do you think that those pillars are going to have once we start
3: to see money being allocated, hopefully, to promoting them? Like, my fingers are crossed that it'll be pretty awesome, (laughs) generally speaking. But the thing is, I guess I should say I am having like conflicted feelings about the whole thing in general, because I'm so excited and happy that like people have fought for this since like far before 2006, um, you know, when the residential school um, settlement first came out, like day school survivors were talking then and then were left out. And so it took, you know, decades to get to this point. And so I'm happy that those involved reached settlement. But this whole thing is also making me feel about like the limitations of reparations. I think for so long uh, a lot of people have been like reparations, reparations, reparations and it somehow felt like a bit like a you know a pipe dream. And so like there was just the demand that we should have it and we should. But then we get here and we see things like, for example, in doing this, all of the 325, I believe, First Nations who are involved, and that's another important point, it's only about half of the First Nations bands in Canada who are a part of this. They cede all rights to come and fight the federal government ever again on any harms conceivably related to the day school system. Also $200,000, some could argue that that is nowhere near a sufficient amount of money, right, to be able to compensate for the true impact of what happened in day schools, the loss of culture language.
2: Yeah, like the one thought that I had when I saw the $200,000 per First Nation or per band number was I was kind of thinking if we're looking at things like hiring language teachers or establishing perhaps physical spaces even where language revitalization can happen, that costs a lot of money I was not really sure how far $200,000 would necessarily go to really establishing that. So I think for me, the really interesting figure is like what's going to happen with this trust fund and like how is that going to be rolled out over the years?
0: When you look at the larger pot of funds, as you say, that's held in trust uh, to serve communities in a way that they see fit to them. I think those amounts are quite necessary and it will be up to the communities to decide how they want to access those resources so that they can take the steps to then revitalize what they feel that they have lost as a result of those policies so all in all it's good is it ever great no none of this is great right like this should have never happened in the first place it did and it did so we're now caring for it in a way that it ought to be but it'll never be enough but at the same time it's just what we need to move forward
1: when we talk about the the ways in which, you know, nations need to be able to use the funds to direct them themselves to really move forward with projects that they feel are going to be the most capacity building and generative for future generations, I think that one of the things that we have to look closely at is what does it mean that the funds are held in trust? What does the focus of getting at those funds look like over time? Who will access them? How? And For what? And we have to look at the folks who are still left out of these agreements, right? We continue to see that individuals, you know, Métis people are left out. My great-grandfather was at residential school in Alberta. And folks who do not belong to the 325 First Nations that this action is meant to address and the settlement is meant to provide reparations for continue to be left out. And so, you know, we're talking about a lot of Indigenous folks who will never have the opportunity to be a part of the discussion around what reparations means.
2: This has been something that people advocated for over decades, that there was a need recognized in communities for decades. And also it did end up being a settlement. So how did this case actually work its way through the courts? What was the process like on that procedural side?
1: Well, I mean, to the best of our knowledge, based on what we can you know, see from the outside, the original claim is actually a civil claim, right? Where folks have to come forward and, and sue for their having been left out of a settlement agreement to begin with. Starting with an individual claim is essential and then moving into a way that you see that there's a group of people or a class that this affects changes the the direction of the court process. And then it's a matter of trying to decide who fits neatly into the class, right? So I don't want to be cynical about it, but at the end of the day, you do have to make decisions along the way about how a class is going to develop, who's going to fit neatly within that class so that you can define it For the courts easily and so that you don't end up undermining the class action as it moves forward by trying to include too many people with too many individual and different legal positionalities, we'll call it.
2: And I guess I do want to talk about the whole thing of this case being settled and basically the numbers being agreed upon 10 days before it was set to go to a trial Like, is there an incentive, I guess, on the part of the government to settle before letting this case go
1: to a trial? First of all, this happens a lot. Things settle before trial all the time because at the end of the day, nobody wants to go to trial. And there are various reasons for that. It's expensive, right? Court is expensive. But I think in this case, moreover, it's about publicity. <laughs> I mean, let's let's be honest here. Again, I don't want to be too cynical about it all, but the federal government does not necessarily want to have another court case splashed all over the newspapers where they are seen to be the bad guy, like as usual. And also, it's about evidence, right? As soon as you're in court, you start having evidence come out. And that evidence is going to be damning in particular ways that Agreeing to certain terms within the limits of a class action may not be in the ongoing, you know, wave of numbers and numbers and numbers of unmarked graves and the impact of that publicly and more importantly on nations. I think that there's a real impetus on the federal government's part to have to have settled without this being in the public eye in the same way.
3: In a way, there's the benefit on the part of survivors and claimants to also not go to court because of just how traumatizing that experience is. You know, like, I don't know if anybody here has been like prepped for court that way. If the federal government got to a courtroom, their goal going in would be to have to pay as little money as possible. And in order to do that, they would grill survivors of these systems more so than just even like having to process the point of getting there. There's then you're putting in the position of re-traumatization.
1: There's no denying that the legal system is violent, right? And it's been used and weaponized violently against Indigenous peoples and continues to be. And until we are running these processes through our own legal systems, through our Indigenous laws, and those are included in these conversations legally that we end up having with government, that's going to continue to be the case.
0: You have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that chose to and really pushed to be a truth commission. And by truth commission, it focused on collecting testimonials from anybody who is involved in the Indian residential school system. And what I liked about it, it didn't require anybody to be tested or challenged or ridiculed or belittled. It was an opportunity to stand before a set of commissioners who were there to listen to a person, a human, a child, tell their story through them to the country. And when you think fundamentally about justice, it does include the opportunity to be heard and the opportunity to speak that truth. Having this settlement almost be expedited through the system really takes away the humanity of some of these earlier structures and systems like the TRC that really allowed the people who have been impacted by that to feel as though they are heard, they get to express truth, but more importantly, they help to bring the country along to face the darker shades of, of our shared history.
2: It's time for private members bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call in the honorable member from Spadina Fort York to introduce a private members bill.
3: Speaker, along the lines of my last private members bill, where I abolished John Tory, I would like to propose we abolish Galen Weston. I hate his little sweater vest wearing thing that he does and the food crisis. And every time I see his face, I'm filled with a genuine rage. And (laughs) like, I just hear him saying, stay mad. Pores is like all I hear as he like raises the price of, you know, essential goods for people. And so again, let's, let's get the problem at the source and (laughs) abolish Galen Weston.
2: I will say I am so shocked that Galen Weston continues to appear in President's Choice commercials when so many people are, like, specifically mad at him right now. Thank you for that. Now I would like to call on the honorable member from Victoria.
1: Thank you, Speaker. I would like to propose that we defund the police. And I know that that doesn't sound like a very radical notion to some people, but I think that indeed we need to be taking the resources that we are giving in terms of core funding to police forces, which continue to go up for some reason, and turn around and actually supply them to Indigenous communities so that they can move forward with doing the good work on the ground that they need to be doing to revitalize their laws and... uh, to make sure that we're actually like thriving. And then uh, along with that, I think that what we can do is we can implement a process where police forces need to bake sale to raise funds, because I think that that would be really interesting. I'd like to see what exactly the police think good baking is.
2: We will take that under consideration. I think the sort of more serious portion of it is somewhat related to what we're talking about in the back half of the show. But the bake sale thing reminds me of that whole plot in Glee, where they had no money all the time, but also staged elaborate performances. And I feel like that, to me, that's what I get from when the police say they have no money, but then just buy increasingly strange things with the money that they do have. You have no money, but you have so many horses. What gives? I'd now like to call
0: on the Honorable Member from Nipissing. Honorable Speaker, I'd like to propose no more cute socks. House of Commons is a place of serious Business and members of parliament should act accordingly. That means no more pizza socks, no more Timbit socks, no more puppy socks, no more. (laughs) All right. A bold proposal to finally abolish
2: the stranglehold that Justin Trudeau's socks has had on the media for the past like 10 years.
4: (laughs)
1: Jail reform is also a hot topic.
4: We need to put the bad folks away in, in jail and uh, not let them back on the streets so easily. Keep the small number of repeat, habitual, violent offenders behind bars.
0: And it is already the case
2: that our courts take firearms offenses and firearms charges very
0: seriously.
2: The 13 provinces and territories are calling for immediate action to strengthen Canada's bail system in the wake of the death of an Ontario Provincial Police officer in late December 2022. One of the two people facing a first-degree murder charge in relation to that officer's death had previously been denied bail in a separate case involving assault and weapons charges, but then was released So the provinces and territories are calling for stricter bail release conditions in response to this event. In late December, federal conservative leader Pierre Poilievre said that the Trudeau government should reverse its, quote, catch-and-release bail policy, which kind of makes it sound like they're going sport fishing.
4: These um, easy catch-and-release bail policies are found in Justin Trudeau's bill C-75.
2: Poiliev is talking about the law liberals passed in 2019 under Bill C-75, which updated bail provisions in the criminal code. That act was meant to reduce delays in the criminal justice system and to make it more modern and efficient. The act also directs police and courts to prioritize releasing detainees at the, quote, earliest reasonable opportunity in an effort to avoid keeping prisons full and backing up the court system. In line with the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty, it also aims to make release on bail as easy as possible while also keeping in mind the circumstances of the case that people are actually facing trial for. It's human nature to fixate on a small number of alarming events such as the aforementioned recent death of an officer, but changing the way the criminal justice system works is tricky business and can have many downstream impacts. Experts say that bail reform might have unintended consequences, particularly for Indigenous or other vulnerable groups who might end up in jail. Black and Indigenous communities already see their populations overrepresented in the prison system. And on top of that overrepresentation, their treatment within the system is different. According to recent reports by CBC, we also know that black prisoners are more likely to be overrepresented in maximum security institutions as opposed to medium or minimum security. They're more likely to experience use of force incidents while incarcerated, placed in solitary confinement, and so on. Indigenous prisoners were also more likely to be subjected to the use of force or labeled as gang members by a prison establishment. Justice Minister David Lametti announced in the House of Commons on February 2nd that the government is considering legislative changes to deal with repeat and violent offenders.
4: In the coming days, I will be reaching out to justice and public safety counterparts to convene an urgent FPT meeting to continue our important work on bail.
2: So it looks like there may be something in the water when it comes to this issue and we might see things changing in the near future. So how is this moment being politicized and what would the consequences of bail reform be? First things first, to ask a very nuts and bolts procedural question, Patricia, what exactly are the premiers calling for and how does it differ from what we currently have in place in terms of bail processes? Yeah, so
1: it sounds like they're calling on the federal government to do a couple of different things. One is that they're talking about trying to get the bail system to treat offenders who have previously offended differently than offenders who may not have previously offended. So what that looks like is... bit confusing at this point in the sense that what kind of offenses are they going to include in the list of things that might be considered for example serious if they're talking about serious offenses um and when they talk about offences involving firearms. What, again, is that going to look like? In terms of the reverse onus position with bail, the idea that anybody coming to court would have to prove that they deserve to be released and not held in custody or incarcerated when, at the end of the day, our Canadian criminal legal system is supposed to not... Take away people's liberty (laughs) at its core. That's supposed to be the foundational principle, is that that's supposed to be a very hard thing to do. Creating a reverse onus for bail would undermine that process entirely.
2: And just to jump in for listeners who may not have heard the term reverse onus before, what does reverse onus actually mean? Like, and how is that different from what we would have now?
1: So, right now, when you come before a judge seeking bail, the onus is on the state to really prove that. You aren't capable of being in public without being dangerous. The state really has to show that keeping you incarcerated is the best thing for public good and safety. However, with a reverse onus, onus is on the individual to prove that they deserve to be out on bail and that their liberty should not be taken away from them.
2: It is exactly what it sounds like when you put it that way. So some of the discussion, specifically what we're seeing out of Pierre Poiliev, is being very colored by, well, the liberals are soft on crime, like, look, they already implemented this sort of bail reform.
4: A bill that makes it much easier to get bail, um, even in cases of repeat violent offenders and even in cases where the uh, allegations against the newly arrested offender are serious uh, and dangerous to the public
2: how meaningful, I guess, first of all, was the impact of Bill C-75, the bill which made it relatively easier for folks to get out on bail?
1: I want to back up to just the idea of bail, generally speaking, before we even turned the idea of the bill that was supposed to reform bail. And I say supposed to because I don't think we see a lot of massive change, right? In that bail, even though it is allegedly, according to sort of the fear-mongering around it, is actually not easy to get for people. When you are a lawyer and you are in court on a bail hearing, you have to set up a plan For this person who wants to be released, you have to make sure that you can you can provide that they are going to not be a danger and all the ways that they're not going to be. You have to sometimes provide letters or documentation about maybe programs that they're going into, where they're going to be dealing with, let's say, substance use issues or where they're going to have housing, how they're going to move forward in terms of not breaching their bail conditions. So it is not an easy process. And that's before the reforms, but I don't see a significant difference in the way that counsel, defense counsel, is approaching bail or has to approach bail based on the reforms, right? You still are required to provide a plan that is going to satisfy the court that the person who is being released on bail is not going to be a danger to the public somehow.
0: Patricia hit it. Ultimately, criminal law legislation really focuses on the safety of the public, right? Like it's it it is law and order at the crux of it that really aims to keep society safe and secure. And there's statistics that were shared recently that help show that there's a decline in the safety and security of Canadian society. And while Final 2022 statistics won't be officially reported until later this year. I did a a quick search of media reports throughout the past year that are telling of a slight upward trend in violent crimes like break-ins, armed robberies, and and other violent crimes. And this actually aligns with crime data, trends that were released by StatsCan Uh, In November of this past year, showing that the national crime rate increasing uh, had been increasing throughout 2021 with more than two million police reported criminal incidents. Now you think, okay, that number in thin air may not seem like a lot given our population. But what we're interested in here is looking as to whether or not it's more than the previous years or less than the previous years, and it's a noted 25,000-plus incidents more than were reported in 2020. And the stats also show us that crimes of violent nature increased by 5% in 2021. So when you look at the totality numbers, the totality in the number of crimes reported 5% increase in the amount of violent crimes. So times are dire. People are acting out. Well, I think a lot of what you mentioned is interesting, right?
2: That we don't have necessarily a ton of data about, Okay, we know that violent crime has gone up. There are a lot of perhaps like societal or structural reasons why that might be like you mentioned times being dire. There's perhaps a connection, you know, just between the like incredible toll that the past couple of years have had on people's mental health, the fact that people are increasingly financially insecure. I think the note of, well, we see these headlines that really highlight when people have previous offenses or when people are specifically released on bail It could be that, actually, this is a really big piece of the puzzle. It could also be this is the thing that media latches onto because it's a very— I don't want to say sensational in the sense of, like, making a mountain out of a molehill or anything, but it's something that will generate readership that is interesting,
0: that seems like a big problem because it is. Now, the question that we're really interested in here in terms of the discussion on bail reform is how many of those who are acting out are reoffending while on bail. Chronic offenders is who we're we're mostly worried about. These are the people who have a long history of antisocial behaviors that have had an impact on the people around them and society generally. So they have failed to access the supports around them. They show no interest in engaging in treatment or rehabilitative programming. And more importantly, they continue to threaten the security and safety of the people around them. And in this case, it's unfortunate. A life has been lost. And it's not the only one. But these are serious considerations here that that do ultimately impact how we as Canadians live our day-to-day lives. Do I think the calls to reform are necessary? Yes, they are. It's clear to me that the pendulum has, has swung completely in one direction, and that we're off kilter here, and we're really it would be in our best interest to seek that balance. And that's what I'd like to see in any legislative
1: reform is
0: let's, let's hit that sweet spot that keeps Canadians safe and secure.
1: I want to be clear that, you know, most repeat offenders are not repeat violent offenders, right? Most repeat offenders in our system are actually people who are struggling and who are, you know, facing multiple barriers and come up against those barriers over and over and over again in communities where there are, is no resourcing for the kinds of supports that they actually need.
2: That's one problem that I see perhaps emerging from this proposal, assuming that it goes through, that would disproportionately impact marginalized
3: communities to me to think that like, you know, all of the premiers are signing this letter and like the, the the big reform that they're trying to look for in the justice system is bail. I would have probably done like the really well-documented discrimination, the root causes of violent offense. And so like, it does feel a bit, sensationalized and this is where I mostly like you know bringing in like the the politicking of it all get like really scared is like to hear Pierre Polyev coming out and being like you are soft on crime and at the same time he has only as far as I've ever seen put out really austere public policy proposals if he were to like you know maintain a leadership or, or get a leadership it's painting a picture if we are to like really latch on to this, I think, of like a greater attention to criminalization, to, to criminalizing people and to like making the justice system uh, harsher, while at the same time making the conditions people live under more austere. And so I just find the entire thing concerning in that regard. Like, again, I don't have enough knowledge of like the stats or the ins and outs to say like, is this actually a a good, solid policy proposal for for bail? And how many people do, you know, this and this and this? But looking at the justice system as a whole, I find it rather off-putting.
2: All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when hopefully I'll be experiencing Toronto's yearly, unseasonably warm day close to the Family Day weekend. If you're following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at Backbenchcast.
3: I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach. Riley, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Riley yes, no, Maybe, or contact me through my website at RileyYesNo.com. Slay. Karen, where can people find you? People
0: can find me on Twitter at Karen Restuhl or at Bold Realities. And Patricia, where can people find you if they want to get in touch?
1: People can find me at my University of Victoria email address, which is pbarkaskas, P-B-A-R-K-A-S-K-A-S, at uvic.ca. Very wise for not being on Twitter.
2: I respect it. You wouldn't steal a car is the first sentence of an iconic public service announcement created in July 2004 as part of a campaign against digital piracy. The PSA has been widely turned into a meme, and a 2022 behavioral economics paper published in the Information Society, which is an academic journal, found that the PSAs may have actually increased piracy. This episode was produced by Sard, with additional production by Noor Azriyeh and Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.